Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is angry. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 002. Last week was our very first episode, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It's the middle of the night, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama, all so I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. It's a nippy 34 degrees outside, but don't feel bad for me. In the shed, it feels at least 38 or 39, and I'm bundled up like a skinny baby in Alaska. Before we hit the news headlines this week, I've finally done it. Almost eight years of marriage, nearly ten years with my better half, and I've finally cracked the code. So gentlemen, fellas, men, bruh. Move a bit closer to the speaker and give that volume knob a generous clockwise turn because Uncle Wes West is going to learn you something real quick, and it is a game changer. Now, ladies, I got love for y'all too, but this here is for my dudes. Fellas, you know what it's like. It happens in every relationship at some point. You get home from a hard day's work or come in the house from walking the dog, and all you want to do is relax and sit in front of some TV. Maybe watch a football game, a UFC fight, something with Liam Neeson in it. But your girl already has a firm grip on that living room TV and she's watching The Masked Singer, My 600 Pound Life, or some show where people who don't even know each other are getting married for some reason. Now this is your girl and you love her, but you do not love what she's got playing on that high definition happy box that you were counting on to display a roundhouse kick to the jaw that Carlos Ray Norris would be proud of. And yeah, that's his real name, look it up. Now you find yourself in quite a quagmire, after all... She was here first, and she's worked hard all day, too. She deserves some relaxation every bit as much as you do, and probably a tad more. But you know if you have to watch a doctor now scold his patient at the follow-up appointment for eating fast food and not exercising one more time, 12 minutes of your life is going to evaporate into thin air, and you will never get it back. So what do you do? How can you be both respectful to your lady, yet still ensure that you don't have to watch Liam Neeson throat punch a terrorist on that tiny off-brand television in the bedroom. Well, do not fret, my soon-to-be learned brother. Allow me to share with you the wisdom the Lord has so graciously bestowed upon me. You see, I got home late from work one night this week, and I hadn't had dinner yet. I had already eaten leftovers for lunch and was searching for something to eat. We were in between grocery runs, so I finally settled on a can of chicken noodle soup. Now, seeing as how I am a 31-year-old man and not a 12-year-old homesick from school, I doctored up the soup by adding a healthy portion of shredded chicken until my bowl was full to the point that it was nearly overflowing. Resigned to my fate, 
and figuring I was going to have to watch my X-Files rerun in the bedroom, I started to walk past my bride, soup in hand. I didn't get two steps out of the kitchen and toward the bedroom before she stopped me. Where are you going with that? I was like, uh, I'm going to the bedroom. I do not wish to watch another episode of Trading Spouses. She was like, you cannot eat a bowl of soup on our bed. I said, what are you talking about? Of course I can. I'm a 31-year-old man. I can eat a delicious bowl of chicken noodle soup without spilling it. Do you not remember the time that you spilled ramen all over your recliner? Or the time you brought an ice cream cone home from the drive-thru and had to change clothes at the front door? Or the time that you spilled an entire gallon of sweet tea on our bed? All true. She was like, here, please, you can watch whatever you want on this TV. Just whatever you do, do not take that soup to our bed. Eureka. I now know how Mr. Benjamin Franklin felt when that lightning struck his key that fateful night. Or how Mr. Washington Carver felt when he first extracted that beautiful tasty butter from that first little peanut. And now I'm sharing this discovery with you, my dudes, free of charge, for the sake of humanity and the betterment of marriages everywhere. The next time that you find yourself wanting to watch something other than a show about dancing, go get you a big boy bowl, fill it to the brim with some delicious soup that sloshes side to side as you walk, and start walking past your lady to the bedroom. You're welcome. I want to issue a couple of corrections and a few responses from our first episode last week. Like I said, I don't assume that I'm smarter than any of you, and I decided to call you the listeners' tools not as a put-down, but because we're gathering together each week in my shed. And the only other option I could come up with to refer to you was uh, shedders, which makes you sound diseased, and I'm guessing that a majority of you probably aren't. So uh, anyone who talks for this amount of time in a row is bound to make some mistakes, and when I do, I have no problem correcting them on the record. So on last week's show, I was unsure of what President Joe Biden's middle initial of R stood for. It turns out it stands for Robinette. In talking about the inauguration, I also unintentionally mispronounced the vice president's first name. I said Kamala, and the correct pronunciation is Kamala. My apologies to you, Madam Vice President. I also referred to the Harvard professor cited in the story we read about a possible alien probe as a physicist. He is not. He is an astronomer. Uh, we have yet to hear from the Keystone, South Dakota Chamber of Commerce. We're still awaiting our invite to next year's Bigfoot Bash. A couple of listeners commented that our show is a long one, and it will continue to be. Our new show is a long-form podcast, as that happens to be what I enjoy listening to the most, and because we cover three different subjects. If you can't listen to an entire episode in one sitting, that's quite all right. You don't have to. Since we're a once-a-week show, you've got seven days to catch up on your daily commute, while out for a jog, or while falling asleep at night. I also heard feedback from a couple of listeners who were confused as to my political affiliation and wanted to know, are you a conservative or a liberal? Do you lean left or right? Are you Republican or Democrat? As I shared in the first episode, I'm a registered independent. I have voted for people on both sides of the aisle. For me, it's not so important what letter is in front of your name, but who you are as a person and what you stand for as well as your qualifications. I do everything I can not to live in an echo chamber. Uh, I watch news from the left, news from the right, news from the center, not to hear what I agree with, but to challenge my thinking. After all, if you never listen to viewpoints other than your own, how will you ever know when you're wrong? I said it last week, and I'm going to keep saying it. The left wing and the right wing both belong to the same bird, and in order for this bald eagle that is our republic to soar, we need them both. 
So what is my political affiliation? I'm in favor of whatever increases freedom, whatever spreads love, whatever encourages compassion, and whatever makes justice ring from coast to coast and for all people in this beautiful nation of ours. And lastly, it was pointed out by several listeners that I said that our show was being recorded in a shed more times than you can shake a stick at. While that's true, there's a good reason for that. It's because it's the middle of the night, and I'm in the shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. And I'm going to keep saying it. On last week's show, I set a goal for this year and even went so far as to name it as one of my top 10 predictions for 2021 that In the Shed would have a single episode with at least 50 listeners. In the first five days our initial episode was online, we received a total of 45 listeners from seven different countries. It turns out that you guys are, in fact, the sharpest tools in the shed. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm having a blast learning how to do this, hearing your feedback and encouragement, and making connections with you. I promise I'll continue to get better and look forward to continuing to growing this thing organically with you. If you're hearing this and you're one of our listeners that tuned in from India, Poland, the UK, Romania, New Zealand, France, I got love for you already. You blew me away, and I hope that you'll stick with us moving forward. One last shout out that must be made before we get to this week's news, and that is to my Meemaw. In case you weren't aware of what a Meemaw is, I talked about her last week. Uh, any southern gentleman calls his grandmother Meemaw, and I in fact have a Meemaw, and she's awesome. And last week I talked about how she was one of the seven people that I could count on that I knew would find this podcast. You guys, I didn't even say anything to her about it. I didn't tell her I was doing it, and... uh a mere three or four hours after I posted my very first podcast online, I was sitting in my bed about to fall asleep, 10.30 at night. My phone dings. I look at it. It's a text from my Meemaw. She says, I just listened to your podcast. You guys, I have the greatest Meemaw ever. She's so cool. I wish that you could know her. She makes the best lasagna and cheesy scallop potatoes in the world. Uh, she's taking me to two SEC basketball tournaments She's taken our whole family to Disney World. We have this tradition, her and I growing up, where we used to go to the movies together. So we've seen The Lion King, Remember the Titans, Save the Last Dance, I, Robot, and The Grudge. That's right. I saw The Grudge in theaters with my grandma. How cool is that? And one time, I was sitting at work, and I got a text from my mima, and I pulled my phone up only to discover that she's in Starbucks in Mississippi with Dave Matthews. Yes, my mima in Starbucks with Dave Matthews. So Meemaw, you are the best in the world, and I feel like you belong to all of us now. You've graduated to become America's Meemaw. So listeners, if you're in need of a Meemaw and you would like to be adopted by the greatest, email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com, and I'll put in a good word for you. With that being said, let's move on. Let's get to this week's news. Here are the headlines. Robinhood CEO says it limited buying in GameStop to protect the firm and protect our customers, according to CNBC. Los Angeles Times, no bathrooms, no seating, endless lines, struggling seniors face vaccine misery. Vox.com says people are not okay, the mental health impact of the Trump era. Biden allows U.S. aid for global abortion providers, writes the BBC. From the Wall Street Journal, South African COVID variant detected in the U.S. And finally, Cuomo's under-fire health chief finally releases tally of COVID deaths in New York nursing homes, writes the New York Post. 
Now, I want to follow up for our first news story in the realm of politics on one of our stories from last week, and that is Donald Trump's pardons. Former President Donald Trump pardoned over 100 people before he left office. One of them that did not get a pardon is our follow-up story, and this is the article. No, he didn't get pardoned, just being impersonated. Joe Exotic is not living it up on the Vegas Strip with Tiger King stars Jeff and Lauren Lowe. He's still behind bars, and the guy hanging with the couple is all about showbiz. Tiger King fans went nuts over the weekend when Jeff and Lauren started posting photos and videos with someone who looked a lot like Joe, leading folks to believe that he was free, but no dice. Sources with direct knowledge tell TMZ the photos show Jeff and Lauren at lunch in Sin City with Vegas Joe, a Joe Exotic lookalike who was recently hired to impersonate the Tiger King star in an upcoming Vegas show. Vegas Joe is a dead ringer. He's got the clothes, the mannerisms, piercings, tattoos, and the voice of Joe Exotic down to a T. We're told Vegas Joe didn't even have to audition for the lead role after production and crew members saw him on the strip. As for the show, we're told it's basically going to be an hour-long parody play with dancers and performers, plus an escape room. The hope is for a midsummer premiere or whenever Nevada allows live shows to fully reopen amid the pandemic. Our sources say Jeff will be featured in the show, along with other Tiger King alums making appearances from time to time, including alleged hitman for hire Alan Glover, The Nanny, and Lauren. Meanwhile, the real Joe is still pushing for a pardon from President Biden after getting snubbed by President Trump. So if you haven't seen the pictures, go online, take a look at it. You've got this guy, Vegas Joe. He is a dead ringer, in fact, for Joe Exotic, who is still sitting in prison. And hopefully the Biden administration will come through for America and will defeat that lady, Carol Baskin. Our next story is about executive orders. Executive orders are in the news this week as President Joe Biden and his new administration have made a lot of them, and people on the right are not happy about it. Now, executive orders started picking up under George W. Bush's administration, but really took off with President Obama. At the time, Donald Trump and many on the right complained about the executive orders, saying that they were unconstitutional and that a president should not be making that many executive orders or signing that many. During his term as president, Donald Trump surpassed the number of executive orders signed by the Obama administration. And if Joe Biden keeps this up, he will eclipse that number uh, by quite a bit. While the American president is the most powerful leader in the world, as they're so often referred, our government is divided into three branches and there are sufficient checks and balances to ensure that no president is going to undo our democracy or crash our economy with the simple stroke of a pen. Even so, executive orders do matter, and they can certainly make a difference for better or worse regarding which way our country is heading and how free of a republic we are. Already, President Biden has tackled a multitude of issues using executive order, everything from halting funding to the border wall, to allowing transgender soldiers to serve in the military once again, to mandating that masks be worn on all federal property. You've heard about those orders, and I'm sure that depending on your political leaning, you probably either decried or celebrated them. The media has made sure to highlight them because they're divisive and are sure to garner ratings. Let me tell you about one executive order this week that was issued that we all should be able to get behind, and that's the Biden administration has instructed the Justice Department not to renew contracts with private for-profit prisons. Now, this will accomplish several things that I think are all good. It will decrease racial injustice present within our judicial injustice system. It will help ensure that corporations aren't profiting from packing prisons, and it will tamp down miscarriages of justice such as over-prosecution and corruption. 
There are 2.3 million people in prison in the United States, making up 22% of the entire world's prison population, making us by far the world leader of prisoners of any industrialized nation. I think one thing that we can all agree upon is that people should not be making money for keeping people in prison longer than necessary. And though there's a lot of executive orders I can't get behind, this is one that I can. And I hope that despite your political leaning, whether Republican, Democrat, uh, whether you voted for Joe Biden or not, this is something that I think is good, that will help our nation, that will push justice forward. And I am all for it. Our next news story is about Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, This story comes from the work of award-winning documentarian Brian Fogle in his new documentary around the story entitled The Dissident. Now, if you remember, Jamal Khashoggi was a columnist for the Washington Post, originally from Saudi Arabia, who was critical of the Saudi royal family and was brutally assassinated at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, back in 2018. Since his murder, it's been proven that Khashoggi's uh, death was carried out under the direct order of the crown prince and by the crown prince's own officials. Investigative journalist Bob Woodward, who broke Watergate, has released recordings made in interviews with then-President Donald Trump in preparation for his book about Donald Trump, in which you can hear the president saying, I saved the crown prince's blank. The truth is, is that we knew that Jamal Khashoggi, who was working for the Washington Post in our very own country as a journalist, was murdered, and we knew that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia was responsible. We knew that, and yet we protected him, and there's currently a motion still before the Justice Department that we keep protecting him. The story goes deeper than that. Something important to know is that the nation of Saudi Arabia and the nation of Qatar uh, have not been getting along. Saudi Arabia, in fact, has placed an embargo on Qatar, making it impossible for people to pass through Saudi Arabia to get to Qatar, and uh, that has made things very difficult for Qatar for their economy, has really put a stranglehold on them. Now, if you remember... The president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was put in charge of peace deals in the Middle East. Something you may not know about Kushner and his family is they had accrued quite a substantial real estate debt. Now, Jared Kushner, after we had protected the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, worked with the nation of Saudi Arabia and the nation of Qatar, and he arranged a peace deal between the two nations. As a part of that peace deal, Saudi Arabia would lift their embargo on Qatar and the nation of Qatar bailed out the Kushner family, paying off their real estate debt. Now, why do I mention this news story? I mention it because it highlights a problem within our politics in America today, and that's that we don't have true public servants anymore. We have career politicians, and we have elected officials and appointed officials who use their position and their power to enrich themselves and their families. And it's on both sides of the aisle. It goes both ways. For example, Nancy Pelosi, who has an average salary of $223,500, somehow has amassed a net worth of $114 million. Mitch McConnell, who makes $193,400 a year, has a net worth of nearly $23 million. Hunter and Jim Biden, the son and the brother of current President Joe Biden, when he was vice president, received foreign contracts and unearned income based on name recognition alone. And Bill and Hillary Clinton have made $240 million over the last 15 years. For what? I'm not exactly sure. If our country ever wants to return to being the nation that we know it can be, the nation that it was intended to be, we've got to figure out a way to get money out of politics. 
We got to figure out a way to elect officials who will put our nation first. We have to find a way to put people in positions of power who will not use that power for their own gratification or for their own enrichment, but who will put the people first and who will truly look at their position as an opportunity to serve the people. If we're going to be the republic that we can be, we have to find a way to have true public servants once again. The dissident can be found on all major streaming platforms. Our last story is a fun one. It comes to us from Colombia. Invasion of the Hippos. Colombia is running out of time to tackle Pablo Escobar's wildest legacy. It was hard enough to find the hippo, a massive ornery male with a reputation for harassing local ranchers. For three long months, a scientist tracked it through the Colombian countryside, staking out lakes, traipsing through the brush, and camping out on nearby farms. But castrating it? That was an almost Herculean task. They had to inject it with a potent elephant tranquilizer before it was safe to approach, but even with the hippo immobilized, it was surprisingly difficult to locate his, ahem, parts. It was horrible, recalled David Lopez, a researcher at the regional environmental agency Cornair, who led the 2013 sterilization effort. You can't just go on the internet and Google what to do with the hippopotamus. After all, the creature belonged on the other side of the ocean in the savannas and forests of the sub-Saharan African terrain. But in the 1980s, drug kingpin Pablo Escobar smuggled four hippos onto his private country estate, and now dozens of its wild spawn roam the wetlands north of Bogota, the largest invasive species on the planet. Locals see the hippos as an unofficial mascot, but to scientists, they're an ecological menace competing with native wildlife and polluting local waterways. Occasionally, they've even attacked humans. Now a study forecasts that the invasive hippo population will swell to almost 1,500 individuals by 2040. At that point, their environmental impacts will be irreversible and their numbers impossible to control. Something needs to be done, and soon. In the beginning, there were only four hippos. How much trouble could they cause? So reasoned Colombian officials charged with dismantling Escobar's sprawling country estate after his death in 1993. They were reluctant to approach the animals, each highly aggressive and roughly the size and weight of a four-door sedan. While most of the drug lord's exotic animals were sent to zoos, the hippos, three females and one male, were allowed to roam. That was the first mistake. In their natural habitat, hippos spend the long dry season crowded in waterways that have shrunk to puddles. There, they are vulnerable to disease and predation, not to mention one another's bad tempers. But tropical Colombia is hippo paradise, Lopez said. Rain is abundant, food is plentiful, and there are no carnivores large enough to pose a threat. The animals spend five hours a day grazing on grass and the rest of their time basking in the cool waters of the Magdalena River and surrounding lakes. Whereas most African communities are justifiably leery of hippos, the creatures do kill more people annually than any other large mammal after all, their Colombian neighbors are captivated by them. Gift shops in nearby Puerto Trienfo sell hippo keychains and t-shirts. At the amusement park that was built on the site of Escobar's former Pleasure Palace, visitors can tour the lake where several dozen hippos now live. Occasionally, one will plod into a nearby community looking as blasé as the shopper on his way to the grocery store. The hippopotamus is the town pet, resident Claudia Patricia Camacho told the news program Noticias Carasal in 2018. You could say that he now takes to the streets as if they were his own. Yet human-hippo interactions aren't usually friendly. In 2009, after a trio of escapees from Hacienda Nepales were reported terrorizing local farms, 
Columbia's environmental agency sent a team of hunters after the animals with an order to shoot on sight. But then a photo emerged showing the soldiers posing with the carcass of one of the adults named Pepe. Animal rights activists denounced the killing. They could have been captured and kept in a safe place until a permanent refuge was found for them, Marcela Ramirez, a member of the local Animal Protection Network, told Routers at the time. A judge issued a ruling suspending the hunt for Pepe's mate and offspring, and it became illegal to kill hippos in the country. That's when Lopez launched his sterilization campaign. After their early exhausting effort to track an animal in the wild, the team decided to try corralling one instead. They piled carrots and fruit in the center of a wooden pen and waited for a hungry, hungry hippo to stroll through. But the crowd didn't work, Lopez said, speaking in Spanish over Zoom. When he felt like he was enclosed, he jumped, crushing the wooden barrier and escaping into the trees. Lopez added, I did not know that a hippo could jump. Eventually, Lopez found the answer he was looking for. Trap the hippo in a pen. Make sure the walls are high. Don't bother with the females. But the process remains dangerous, time-consuming, and costly, especially for his low-budget agency. Lopez is able to castrate roughly one hippo a year, whereas scientists estimate that the population grows by 10% annually. Last year, a rancher was caught by surprise while collecting water. The hippo bit his leg and threw him into the air, breaking his leg, hip, and a number of ribs. A 2020 study of hippo-inhabited lakes found that nutrients in the animal's feces were fueling huge blooms of bacteria and algae. These in turn reduced the oxygen content of the water, making it toxic to fish. We saw oxygen levels that were getting to levels where you would expect to see fish start to go belly up, said Jonathan Shuren, an ecologist at the University of California at San Diego who has worked with Lopez to evaluate the hippo's environmental impacts. There is concern that this will affect the region's fishing industry. In Africa, hippos act as ecosystem engineers, transferring nutrients from land to lakes and sculpting new channels of water as they tread across the dry earth. Some researchers have suggested they could provide a similar service in their new home. They might even fill the environment niche left by massive mammals that went extinct after the Ice Age. Giant llamas, a rhino relative called the Toxodon. But Natalie Castablanca Martinez, see how well I did that, a Colombian ecologist working at the University of Quintano Roo in Mexico was skeptical of this hypothesis. Colombia's lakes and rivers are already home to large native mammals. Giant guinea pig-like capybaras feed on the grasses and fruits now consumed by hippos. Threatened Antillean manatees may be crowded out of their habitat by the aggressive newcomers. Management of the hippo problem takes resources away from Colombia's hundreds of endangered animals, Castablanca Martinez said. It also distracts officials from dealing with the roughly 400 invasive species that threaten native ecosystems already. Animal rights activists are concerned only for the hippo, she continued. They are missing the whole picture, the social picture, the economic picture, and the ecological picture as well. Casablanca Martinez is the lead author on the new population study published this month in the journal Biological Conservation. Using statistical models and climate projections, her team found that the hippos were on track to meet the ecosystem's carrying capacity, about 1,418 animals, by 2039. Officials would have to increase the pace of sterilizations to about 30 per year, half of them in females to have any effect at all, and even then, it would simply delay the point at which the hippos consumed all the food and space available to them. The only efficient strategy to deal with the invasion, Casablanca Martinez and her colleagues wrote, was extraction of 30 hippos per year starting right now. There's no obvious place to put them. Puerto Triunfo has four years sought zoos willing to take the hippos to no avail. 
No African nation would risk their own hippo population by reintroducing dozens of animals with mysterious origins and unknown behaviors. The scientists say Colombia must consider a coal. Nobody likes the idea of shooting a hippo. I do not like it, Casablanca Martinez said, but no other strategy is going to work. This is what happens, she said, when a society fails to act on a problem until it becomes too dire to ignore. Relocation might have been feasible 30 years ago when there were only four hippos. Castration could have been effective if officials had provided sufficient resources for the program early on. Now the sole remaining option is the most painful one. Lopez, however, is less certain that killing the hippos is the only way to go. These are animals who have turned themselves into an emblem for a whole community of people, he said. It's not possible to just take them away. He suggested it might be possible to sterilize or relocate the 50 or so hippos in the lake near Hacienda Napoles and only cull those that have wandered farther afield. The U.S. nonprofit Animal Balance is collecting donations to help pay for this effort, but he agreed that time is running out to act. I've worked for many years to understand the problem and to find solutions, but the problem keeps happening over and over again, Lopez said. The only thing that changes is the number of hippos. So that's an interesting story. All due to the actions of one man, there's an invasive species of hippos in Colombia. Imagine being that Lopez fella. Somebody asks you, you're out at a bar, and somebody says, so what do you do for a living? Well, I'm the head of the nation's hippo castration project. <laughs> That's utterly bizarre. Uh, if you need some hunters, if you decide to go for a cull, I happen to know quite a few very good hunters here in Alabama that probably would enjoy such an endeavor. Let's move on to sports, and let's hit our headlines. Big Ben vows to help Steelers with $41 million cap hit. Deshaun Watson has officially asked the Texans to be traded. Notre Dame will go back to being an independent for the 2021-2022 college football season. Alabama Crimson Tide quarterback Mac Jones sprained his ankle on Miss Saturday's Senior Bowl. UConn's men basketball team halts after sharing court with a COVID-positive referee. San Antonio Spurs head coach Greg Popovich has gotten the COVID-19 vaccine and is encouraging others to do so. And the Washington football team and former Carolina Panthers head coach Ron Rivera is now cancer-free. Good for him. Let's talk about the NFL playoffs. So last week I shared that I did something called three against the field, in which when the playoffs are starting, you take three teams against the rest of the teams in the field and uh, the hope is that one of your teams will, in fact, win the Super Bowl. I took the Bills, the Buccaneers, and the Seahawks. The Bills and the Seahawks have let me down, but the Buccaneers are still there. Last week, one of my top 10 predictions for 2021 was that Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl and retires, so I'm all in on the Buccaneers. Let's look at how we did in predicting the AFC and NFC Championship games. In the AFC, we predicted Bills 31, Chiefs 27. In actuality, the Chiefs won the game 38-24, to and I'll admit that I got rocked to sleep a little bit. I was duped. Uh, we were uncertain heading into the game how healthy Patrick Mahomes would be. Uh, the Bills have looked great all year. I really bought into their defense. I like their coaching staff. Uh, I like how they were, they were playing going into that game. I really thought that they would have a chance. But in actuality, I was uh, distracted from the greatness that are the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is just that dude. Andy Reid is one of the top four or five coaches in the game. And top to bottom, that's the best roster, the most talented roster that there is in all of the NFL. 
Uh, I kind of wish that Josh Allen had played better. I thought that he would. Buffalo had a tremendous year, but the Bills just couldn't cover Kansas City's receivers. They couldn't cover the running backs coming out of the backfield, and that was the difference in the game. I mean, all day long, Patrick Mahomes was hitting guys who were wide open, um, guys who were 15 yards down the field untouched. He threw for 325 yards and three scores. He played nearly perfect ball, and uh, he didn't even ever really look pressed. Uh, So the Chiefs are, in fact, great, and they are in the Super Bowl. Now, in the NFC, we did a little bit better. We predicted the Buccaneers 23 and the Packers 17. The actual score was Buccaneers 31 and Packers 26, so we were pretty close here. I thought the Buccaneers would go to Lambeau and get it done. Uh, I just like what I've seen from their defense as of late. They have a lot of weapons on offense. They have a good coaching staff, uh, coaching staff that's a little bit more experienced than that of Green Bay. And, of course, they have the GOAT, Tom Brady. I said Aaron Rodgers would throw a couple picks. He threw one. The Packers gave another away on a fumble. Um, Brady didn't play flawlessly. I mean, let's be honest. He had a great first half and a sloppy second half, but he did enough to win on the road. And he's in the Super Bowl again, this time at home. People will talk about Matt LaFleur's decision to kick the field goal instead of going for the touchdown. They'll talk about the touchdown given up right before the half uh, on a, a horrible defensive call. But the story here isn't either of those things. The story here isn't what Aaron Rodgers is going to do next year or whether he'll remain with the Packers. The story here is the greatness of Tom Brady. And I I know, I know that's something that people are tired of hearing about, but it can't be understated. Tom Brady is not the most talented football player to ever hit the field. Tom Brady does not have the best arm of any quarterback in history. But Tom Brady is unquestionably the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL. And this year, without Bill Belichick, without the Patriots coaching staff, without the organization, without the scheme, Tom Brady has proven that. Essentially, what Tom Brady has done, uh, moving from the Patriots to the Buccaneers, is just to go any, mini miny, miny, mo, who wants to go to the Super Bowl. He picked a team, uh, a franchise that has one of the worst winning percentages in the history of the NFL. A team that had a lot of receivers, But a lot of the talent that they have this year with Tom Brady, they had last year and the year before as well, and it didn't mean a whole lot. Tom Brady is a plug-and-play quarterback that has taken his team to the Super Bowl. On next week's show, we're going to do an in-depth Super Bowl preview, and we're going to say that it's Billy versus the baby. It's the goat versus the baby goat. It's experience and IQ versus raw athleticism and talent, and it sure is going to be fun to watch. Now, in the NCAA football, the University of Tennessee has had an interesting time as of late. They fired Jeremy Pruitt and 10 football staffers and relieved Philip Fulmer of his duties as athletic director. Then they held a chaotic press conference where the former coach was excoriated for NCAA violations. On the Dan Patrick Show, uh, it was even suggested that boosters had been handing out McDonald's bags full of money to recruits. In the last couple of days, They hired athletic director Danny White from UFC, and then just a couple days later, they've got their new coach, tabbing UFC head coach Josh Heupel to take over. Now, before recording tonight's show, before Josh Heupel was hired, I had prepared uh, to talk about this, and I was going to talk about how the popular names, the names that Tennessee fans and folks in the media were touting for that position were folks like Tony Elliott, the the offensive coordinator from Clemson, or Jamie Chadwell, the head coach of Coastal Carolina that had a great season this last year, 
or even Kevin Steele, former defensive coordinator for Auburn, who had just been hired to be on the defensive staff for Tennessee, which is his alma mater. Those were kind of the names that people were talking about. And uh, I kid you not, I had written down three names to watch here for this head coaching job. And those three names were Lance Leopold, who is currently the head coach at Buffalo and was hired at Buffalo by new AD at Tennessee. Um, The second name I had was Bill Clark, the head coach at UAB, who is a program builder and very underrated. And the third name that I had written down was none other than Josh Heupel. I kind of thought that right now with Tennessee facing possible NCAA violations, uh, with their last two coaching searches being utter disasters, their list of possible suitors might be a short one. Since Peyton Manning, Tennessee has really been Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events. Things have not gone well for them. They want to return to their former glory, but who wants to take a job uh, at a place that has to go up against Georgia and Florida every year, who one of their main rivals, rivals is Alabama and Nick Saban, and who's facing NCAA violations. So while Josh Heupel is not a name that's going to excite a lot of Tennessee fans, in fact, on Twitter, they are up in arms about it. He is 28-8 in his three years at UCF. And one thing that you can, uh, you can go off of here that's a good thing is that him and the AD are on the same page. That has been a problem at Tennessee in the last few years, the last few coaching hires, is that their head coach hasn't been on the page with boosters, the athletic director with the rest of the the folks there at the university. That won't be a problem this year or next. Uh, Who knows if Josh Heupel will be successful at Tennessee. Uh, He's got an uphill climb for sure. But at least they have found somebody willing to take the job. They found a man of integrity. From all reports, uh, Josh Heupel is above reproach. And uh, I hope he does well. I hope he wins there. Um, I wish him nothing but success. Moving on, let's talk about UFC 257, McGregor versus Poirier. Conor McGregor got knocked out, KO'd in the second round, the first time in his career that he's lost by knockout. His record now stands at 22-5, and and the once-untouchable fighter now seems far from invincible. There's no doubt that Poirier is a good fighter, tactically a very good fighter, but the story here, the thing that most uh, UFC fans, or at least most casual UFC fans, are most interested in is where does Conor McGregor go from here? Conor McGregor. Is that is that getting better? Conor McGregor's only 32, and everybody was saying that he was coming into the fight in tip-top shape, but now he'll be out a minimum of six months recovering from the beating that he took in the octagon. One interesting thing that I thought was that uh, it was really cool to see Conor McGregor come into the fight as a kinder, more gracious fighter. Um, he had agreed to donate $500,000 of his winnings or of his proceeds from the fight to Poirier's charity, which was really neat. However, it does beg the question, has Conor McGregor lost his edge a little bit? I don't think he's spent, but he's clearly not the elite fighter that he used to be. He'll always be a big draw. Anytime that Conor McGregor steps into the octagon, people will be willing to pay for it, and that won't change even after this loss. But is he still motivated? Does he still want it? Does he still have that fire in him? Or is he more interested now in his uh, business interests and other career opportunities, Um, has he lost his desire to be the best fighter in the world, or does he come back from this stronger than ever? It'll be interesting to see. Uh, These two guys have fought twice already, with the first time McGregor, the one doing the knocking out, and this time the one being knocked out. I'm sure they'll fight for a third time. It'll be a little while before we see it. 
And when we do, I'll tune in. Um, like I said, I don't think McGregor is necessarily done, but after the last couple fights, it's clear that he has lost a step or two. So that'll be interesting to watch moving forward. Um, it was a good first round of the fight, and uh, the second round, it, it ended pretty quickly. Our last news story in the sports world today comes to us from the NBA and the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat are going to use coronavirus-sniffing dogs to screen fans at their game. The Heat are bringing back some fans with help from dogs. The Heat will use coronavirus-sniffing dogs in American Airlines Arena to screen fans who want to attend their games. They've been working on the plan for months, and the highly trained dogs have been in place for some games this season in which the team has allowed a handful of guests, mostly friends and family of players and staff. Starting this week, a limited number of ticket holders will be in the seats as well, provided they get past the dogs first. If you think about it, detection dogs are not new, said Matthew Jafarian, the Heat's Executive Vice President for Business Strategy. You've seen them in airports, they've been used in mission-critical situations by police and military, we've used them at the arena for years to detect explosives. The first Heat game with ticket holders is set for Thursday night against the LA Clippers. Monday is the first day the season ticket holders will be able to start securing their seats. The Heat have sold out 451 consecutive games, the sixth longest streak in NBA history. Sellouts obviously aren't happening this year. The Heat will keep attendance under 2,000 for now, or less than 10% of the building's total capacity. Please note the seating will be very limited, as we will be observing proper physical distancing, the team said in a letter to season ticket holders. The coronavirus-sniffing dog idea has been put into place at airports in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, and Helsinki in recent months. At Heat Games, fans arriving for the game will be brought to a screening area, and the detection dogs will walk past. If the dog keeps going, the fan is cleared. However, if the dog sits, that's a sign that it detects the virus and the fan will be denied entry. Other protocols the Heat will use. A health screening questionnaire will be mandatory for all guests. Masks must be worn continually, and only soda and water will be sold in the arena. All transactions will be cashless, and if a fan feels ill during a game, isolation rooms will be available. If a fan is allergic to or afraid of dogs, the Heat are offering an option to skip the dog screening and to submit to a rapid antigen test instead. The Heat say those tests can be processed in less than 45 minutes. Dogs have a superior sense of smell, which is why they're often used by law enforcement to find everything from drugs to bombs to missing people. Medical researchers have long reaped the benefit of canine sniffing, training some dogs to detect when a person is dealing with things such as too much stress, too little blood sugar, and even certain cancers. A German study last year found that dogs there were right 94% of the time when it came to coronavirus detection. Researchers are finding that spe specially trained dogs can detect COVID on humans quickly and accurately, Jafarian said. Yeah, that's interesting. Coronavirus sniffing dogs. You know, that sounds like a good idea, um, but I just see this going south in one way. When someone gets denied entrance to their basketball game, their precious basketball game, because a dog is sat. <laughs> I mean, if you're waiting to get in, you get there 45 minutes earlier, or early before the tip-off so that you can uh, be sniffed by this dog, you feel fine, you're asymptomatic, you don't have much going on, and then this dog walks past you and sits down um, for, for whatever reason, and then they're going to say, sorry, sir, you cannot come into the game. Yeah, I can see that going south real quick. That's all of this week's sports coverage. Now let's go to the world of the paranormal. 
Our first story comes to us from Fall River, Massachusetts. It's a story that you've probably heard before, and tonight we're going to take a deep dive into the story of Lizzie Borden. The murders happened on August 4th, 1892, but our story starts the night before. Lizzie Borden's uncle John Morse arrived the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast the next morning, at which Lizzie's father Andrew, her stepmother Abby, her uncle John Morse, and the Borden's maid Bridget Sullivan were present, Andrew and Morse went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen and to visit his niece in Fall River, planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime around 9 a.m. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma, her little sister's, regular chores, her stepmother Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed in the guest room. According to forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, killing her. When Andrew returned around 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door, so he knocked for attention. Sullivan went to unlock the door, finding it jammed. She uttered an expletive. She would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She did not see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant, as Abby was already dead by this time, and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, and she had told him that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Lizzie stated that she had then removed her father's boots, helped him into his slippers, and he had laid down for a nap on the sofa. She then informed Sullivan of a department store sale and permitted her to go, but Sullivan felt unwell and went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. Sullivan testified that she was in her third-floor room resting after cleaning the windows when just before 11.10 a.m. she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Come quick. Father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck ten or eleven times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split clean in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when he was attacked. Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived from his home across the street to determine that both victims had died. Detectives estimated that his death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. Lizzie Borden's initial answers to the police's questions about the day's events were at times strange and contradictory. Initially, she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told police that she had heard nothing and entered the house not realizing that anything at all was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Sullivan and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs looking for her. They were eye-level with the floor when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Borden reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said she was too calm and poised, 
Despite her attitude changing, alibis, no one bothered to check her for bloodstains. Police did search her room, but it was a cursory inspection. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Borden was not feeling well. They were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence. In the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that of any other bladed tool, appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement longer than it actually had. However, none of these tools were removed from the house. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomachs were tested for poison, but none was found. Residents of the town suspected Lizzie of purchasing hydrocyanic acid in a diluted form from the local drugstore. She defended that she had inquired about the acid so she could clean her furs, despite the local medical examiner's testimony that the acid had no antiseptic, antiseptic properties whatsoever. Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell decided to stay with them the night following the murders, while Moore spent the night in the attic guest room. Police were stationed around the house on the night of August 4th, during which an officer said he saw Borden enter the cellar with Russell, carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone. Though he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated it appeared that she was bent over the sink, cleaning something. On August 5th, Morse left the house and was mobbed by hundreds of people. Police had to escort him back to the house. On August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sister's clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning, Russell entered the kitchen to find Borden tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the night of the murders. Borden's trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5, 1893. Five days before the trial's commencement on June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between the Manchester and the Borden murders were striking and noted by jurors. However, Josea Carrera de Mello, a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894 and was determined not to have been in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. A prominent point of discussion in the trial was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this testimony. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Russell testified that on August 8, 1892, she had witnessed Borden burn a dress in the kitchen stove, saying it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint, a claim that Borden's defense attorneys never attempted to challenge. Lizzie Borden's presence at the home was also a point of dispute. According to testimony, Sullivan entered the second floor of the home at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time she went into the barn and was not in the house for a period of 20 to 30 minutes. A neighbor testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m. 
with another neighbor confirming the time. At 11.10 a.m., Lizzie called Sullivan downstairs, telling her that her father had been murdered and ordering her not to enter the room. Instead, Borden sent her to get a doctor. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Borden of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world. Although acquitted at trial, Borden remains the prime suspect in her father and stepfather, stepmother's murders. Writer Victoria Lincoln proposed in 1967 that Borden might have committed the murders while in a fugue state. Another prominent suggestion was that she was abused by her father, which drove her to kill him, though there is little evidence to support this claim. Other theories include that Borden had an undiagnosed mental illness, disassociative disorder, or was psychotic, that she was possessed by a demon, and that she was in a secret relationship with a maid, which was discovered by her stepmother throwing her into a murderous rage. Another significant suspect in the murders was John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle, who rarely met with the family after his sister died, but had slept in the house the night before the murders. According to law enforcement, Morse had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden and was considered a suspect by police for a period. Others noted as potential suspects in the crime include Sullivan, the maid, possibly in retaliation for being ordered to clean the windows on a hot day, and William Borden, Andrew Borden's illegitimate son, who had already tried once before unsuccessfully to blackmail him. So you've heard the rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an axe. She gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. But did she really? Did she really? First of all, it wasn't 40 and 41. Those make a great rhyme. It was 17 and 10 or 11. That doesn't rhyme so well. But was Lizzie Borden actually guilty of these murders? There's a lot of conflicting reports and different ideas. And it's an interesting story. It's often been said that Lizzie Borden was found innocent, not because she was innocent, but because in that time in 1892, the jury of 12 men just could not reason and could not consider and could not come to grips with the fact that a woman was capable of such a vicious and violent murder. But when you look at the story, there's actually a lot more going on. There's a lot of reasons to suggest that maybe Lizzie Borden was, in fact, innocent. There's a lot of reasons to suggest that maybe Lizzie Borden was, in fact, guilty. So let's talk about some of those. Let's share them together. Five reasons Lizzie Borden may have been guilty. Number one, the reason for a lot of murders, greed. Lizzie Borden's father at the time of his murder was worth a substantial amount of money, an amount of money that in today's world would equate to about $8.3 million. Even so, uh, he was very frugal and in fact was a penny pincher. He was not uh, sharing his wealth with his daughters. He was not bestowing upon them uh, all kinds of, of, of opulent things. Um, in fact, Lizzie's stepmother, who she did not get along with very well, was the one to receive anything extra. And so uh, one possible motive for a murder, something that points to her guilt, was just the simple basis of greed. Another is resentment. Resentment towards her stepmother, towards her father, towards the relationship that they have. Um, also her past behavior. There's all kinds of reports, substantiated reports, um, reports uh, from journals 
that point to her as a pathological liar, to point to times when she had stolen from her stepmother. Specifically, she stole her jewelry and then denied it, and her her parents did not believe her. Um, Even reports of her being cruel to animals. Uh, There was one report that she had allegedly beheaded her stepmother's cat. And she had an odd premonition. This wasn't included in the story that I read. But a couple of days before her father was killed, she actually had, had talked to one of her friends and said that she was afraid someone was going to come in the house and kill her father. Two days later, her father is hacked to pieces. So five reasons Lizzie Borden may have been guilty. Greed, resentment, her past behavior. How about a compromised crime scene? How about her attempt to purchase poison? Those are all things that point towards the possibility that Lizzie Borden was the one who committed this heinous crime, was the one that killed her parents. But if we're being fair, if we're being honest, there's also some reasons to doubt her guilt. Five reasons that Lizzie Borden may have been innocent. Number one, it just simply could have been someone else. It simply could have been someone else. One theory was that someone came into the house and hid upstairs, killed her stepmother, came downstairs to leave, saw her father on the couch, killed him as well. It's not impossible. The second reason Lizzie Borden could be innocent, because the prosecution didn't prove a murder weapon, and they didn't connect Lizzie to one. They had a hatchet they thought maybe was the murder weapon. If they had shown for sure that it was the murder weapon, maybe she would have been convicted even in 1892, but they didn't do it. The prosecution failed to do that. Number three, she never confessed. Not to police, not to a friend, not in a journal, not on her deathbed. At no time in her life did Lizzie Borden ever do anything other than stick to the story that she, in fact, was innocent. Does that mean that she was innocent? No, of course it doesn't mean that she was innocent. A lot of guilty people say that they didn't do it. But also a lot of people who are guilty at some point fess up to someone. Lizzie Borden never did. Reason number four. She was reportedly very close to her father and had a good relationship with him. The idea or the speculation or the claim that her father was abusive and that she killed him in retaliation, uh, there's really not a lot to that when you look at the facts, when you look at history. Um, If she was guilty, it could be one possible reason to explain why she did it, but honestly, it's more of an entertainment-based reason. It's something that that was um, put forth in, in books and in movies about the case. There's no record, no written record, no historical record that shows that, in fact, her father was abusive, but there's plenty that shows that she had great affection for her father and a good relationship. Obviously, that doesn't mean it's impossible for her to hurt him or to take his life, um, but it is something that goes on the side uh, of her maybe being innocent. And the last reason that Lizzie Borden may have been innocent is much of her family stuck by her. Even after her stepmother and her father turned up dead, even after she was a suspect, even after she was on trial, Even after she was found innocent, much of her family stuck by her side, never doubted her story. Um, Something that doesn't get talked about that's not on this list for the five reasons she may be guilty or innocent is this mystery illness. This is something that I would love to to hear more about, something that I'm curious of. Um, It never has been explained. They thought because of this, this weird illness that maybe Lizzie Borden had in fact tried to poison her family. Uh, but actually, uh, her journal shows that she was sick too. And leading up to this this murder and this crime, the entire family, the whole Borden household, including the maid, had been sick with this mystery illness that had caused all kinds of 
of bizarre side effects and symptoms and behavior. And uh, I don't know. I just kind of think that maybe that has something to do with this crime. It's it's never really mentioned in connection or in reasoning. Um, but that's just kind of a, a presupposition or an idea that I had that maybe something to do with that illness uh, might play a bigger role in this than we've previously thought. So interesting story. Do you think Lizzie Borden was guilty? Do you think Lizzie Borden was innocent? Let us know. Send us an email. Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about Lizzie Borden. Where do you stand? Was she innocent or was she guilty? And in fact, she actually has been in the news recently. Aside from this case, it's because uh, Fall River's Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast is going on the market. Fall River's most iconic home is about to hit the real estate market again. The Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast is going to be put up for sale according to the realtor selling the companion property owned by the same owner of the infamous murder house at 92 Second Street. Suzanne St. John, who works at the Bed and Breakfast as a tour guide, is a realtor with the Seaboth team. She's also the realtor for Maplecroft, the home Lizzie Borden lived in after being acquitted of the murders, which has been on the market again since August. That home was put up for sale for $890,000, is fully furnished, and is almost completely renovated condition. St. John posted on her Facebook page a photo of the bed and breakfast location with a for sale sign out front and the caption, Ask me about what's coming on the market. When a commenter expressed concern that it would go to a private owner and no longer be open to the public, St. John intimated that there's a healthy amount of reservations coming up at the house. St. John said the bed and breakfast officially hit the market on January 11th and will be fully furnished with an asking price of $2 million. Donald Woods purchased the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in 2004 with partner Leanne Wilbur and then purchased Maplecroft in February 2018. Renovations on that property continued, but once COVID-19 pandemic hit, Woods made the decision to retire and to put Maplecroft on the market. St. John says those retirement plans are also why the bed and breakfast is being put up on the market as well. So uh, if you can scrape together a couple million dollars, you can have the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. You can run it. You can own it. And uh, I don't have money to contribute to that, but I sure will uh, bring my wife and we'll come spend a week- <laughs> we'll come spend a weekend at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. I don't know that she would get behind that. I certainly would. I think that it would be interesting and be a lot of fun. And uh, I really like the way that she's marketing the house. Ask me what's coming on the market. Very, very good. Ask me what's coming on the market. That's a good realtor right there. She really knows what she's doing in selling the Lizzie Borden house. For our next news story, we go from Massachusetts to the ocean. Yeah, we're going, we're going to the ocean. Go for a little swim. Can you swim? You got your trunks ready? Here we go. Bermuda Triangle ghost ship discovered 95 years after it vanished. The Bermuda Triangle has long been considered a classic supernatural mystery. The loosely defined triangle is, as its name suggests, in the vicinity of Bermuda, though it has a total area of somewhere between 1.3 and 3.9 million kilometers square and is famed for the mysterious disappearance that takes place within it. Across the decades, many horror films have seized upon it as a setting, like Satan's Triangle, Beyond the Bermuda Triangle, The Fantastic Journey, The Triangle, and of course, Scooby-Doo Pirates Ahoy back in 2017. There was also a new project on the cards from Universal who were angling for Sam Raimi to direct. Explanations for the disappearance range from massive rogue waves, strange magnetic forces, underwater methane bubbles, alien portals, and the lost kingdom of Atlantis. 
Of course, extremely boring people will point out the area of Bermuda Triangle has no greater cases of ship disappearances than anywhere else. That's a, is that true, really? How is this article going to ruin my, my view of the Bermuda Triangle? I grew up reading about the Bermuda Triangle. I watched the episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack that talked about the Bermuda Triangle. And you're going to say, you're going to say that there is no greater cases of ship disappearances than anywhere else? I got to Google that. That can't be right. If that was the case, why would we, would we be so afraid of the Bermuda Triangle? Everything disappeared, right? It's like the Houdini of ocean spots, like everything. Anyway, okay. That may be the case, but I don't think that that necessarily disproves my pet theory that the Atlanteans are capturing ships to test out their hyper-advanced underwater cloning technology that will soon enable them to swarm the Florida coastline. The truth is out there, folks, but now we can at least clear up one Bermuda Triangle mystery. The SS Cotopaxi is one of the most renowned Bermuda Triangle disappearances. The ship and its 32 crew members vanished without a trace en route to Cuba in December 1925, which has given rise to a legend of a ghost ship, with it even being recently sighted off the coast of Cuba. It's also popped up in film, as in, as in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The Cotopaxi is discovered on the other side of the world in the Gobi Desert, having been dropped off there by aliens. But now it seems the mystery of the Cotopaxi has been solved, as marine biologist Michael Barnett has identified a known wreck as being the missing ship. There were several elements that confirmed the identity, such as the dimensions of the ship, its length, and the measurement of the boiler, he said. Also, I looked at the general orientation of the machinery. It was all consistent with the information we knew about the Cotopaxi. Naturally, this wreck means that the recent sighting of it must have been mistaken, or, perhaps more likely, the Cotopaxi was seized by a consortium of Atlanteans and greys and duplicated through nanotech cloning technology, inadvertently granting the crew immortality but cursing them to forever roam the oceans. I suppose we'll never know. I think we do know. I think it sank. But I don't see how the fact that they have discovered it disproves the Bermuda Triangle. The whole thing is not that Everything disappears and we never know what happened to it. The whole thing is that things disappear or they sink and they, they don't make it through safely, right? Like they don't make it through the Bermuda Triangle and get to their destination safely. That's what I've always thought about the Bermuda Triangle. Um, what do you think about the Bermuda Triangle? Send us an email. What is our email address, yo? Send us an email at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I'm so glad that you asked. That's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I only got two emails out of all 45 of y'all last week. Send us an email. Let us know what you think. Let us know what we should talk about. Uh, we would always enjoy hearing from you. We go from the ocean to Dallas, Texas. Our next couple of stories will delve into the world of conspiracy theories, something that I love. This story comes to us from Dallas, Texas, and it's entitled, LBJ Ordered the Killing of JFK, power-crazed Vice President Hatchet Plot with Hoover. Explosive new evidence has confirmed a deadly, ambitious Lyndon B. Johnson gave the order to kill President John F. Kennedy in a dark conspiracy hatched with longtime Kennedy family nemesis, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The National Enquirer, yes, that National Enquirer, the ever-reliable National Enquirer, 
the unquestionable National Enquirer, has learned the shocking truth emerged after tens of thousands of pages of classified documents about the assassination were released in 2017, nearly 55 years after the horrific events of November 22, 1963. So, these documents were released in 2017, and four years later, they have learned the shocking truth. It took four years. Okay. All right. I'm with you, National Enquirer. Let's go. I'm a slow reader sometimes, too. All right. Here we go. The John F. Kennedy assassination was a coup d'etat. I love that phrase, coup d'etat. It sounds so kind, but it's really not, though. If you look up the definition, it is not kind at all. Like a coup d'etat is, sounds like a, you know, like, would you like a coup d'etat? Like, it sounds cool, like cupcakes or, I don't know, it's kind of violent. The John F. Kennedy assassination was a coup d'etat, said Dr. Cyril Wicht a forensic pathologist and member of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee charged to uncover the culprits behind the murders of Senator Robert F. Kennedy and civil rights activist Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The documents reveal that a power-mad LBJ, desperate to move into the Oval Office, cooked up the plot with Hoover and furious former CIA chief Alan Dules, who had been fired by JFK after the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961. Hmm. Shocking claims. JFK autopsy blasted as hoax by eyewitness nurse. Oh. Okay. Hoover had publicly battled JFK and his brother, then Attorney General RFK, and knew the siblings intended to fire him after the 1964 election. According to sources, a vengeful Hoover prompted Johnson to give his blessing to the execution. Hoover had a tumultuous relationship with the Kennedys, forensic analyst Stephen Jaffe, who has studied the assassination, told the Inquirer. He wanted to go after the communists, but they wanted him to target the mafia. <laughs> he wanted to go after the communists, but they wanted him to target the mafia. <laughs> it's been suggested Hoover wouldn't go after the mob because they could blackmail him. The FBI director sent a telex, exclusively examined by the Inquirer, warning an FBI field officer five days before the November 22nd tragedy that there was a plot to kill Kennedy. The telex was sent November 17, 1963 at 1.45 a.m. Eastern Time and warned, Threat to assassinate President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas, November 22-23, 1963. I personally believe J. Ed Edgar Hoover not only was a part of the cabal to kill Kennedy, but led it, and the telex was sent to cover himself after the fact, Jaffe told the Inquirer. With LBJ's blessing, Hoover deployed his loyal FBI agents like a personal hit squad and with the CIA intel and assistance provided by its former chief duels, drew up the assassination plan. So according to the National Enquirer, it in fact was LBJ, along with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, the CIA, they all worked together as a cabal, another word that I enjoy, to do a coup d'etat, a little coup d'etat with some frosting on top and a candle, and it wasn't so happy for JFK. Um, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, definitely don't think that it was Lee Harvey Oswald alone and by himself with no one else involved, no one directing him. Um, I've read books and, and all kinds of stuff on this case. There's just too much there, the magic bullet. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about what happened for sure. 
I don't put much stock in the National Enquirer, that's for sure. Um, but there's definitely some fishy stuff about the JFK assassination, and I don't think that it happened the way they were told it did in history. And uh, so, yeah, that's interesting. For our next story, we go to Washington State for another conspiracy that I enjoy. That's the story of one D.B. Cooper. Let's do the initial game again. What does D.B. stand for? And I can answer this one. Nobody knows. That's part of the mystery. Nobody knows. It could be Daniel Barnett. And if you're listening, Daniel, I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying it could be. It could be um, David Birkins. Birkins, yeah. It could be Dmitry Borkovsky. I mean, we don't really know. Um, but anyway, to Washington State we go. D.B. Cooper, mystery man found dead. Suspected 1971 hijacker took secrets to the grave. The former military man suspected of being infamous hijacker D.B. Cooper has died, taking the secret of his true identity to the grave with him. Some senior FBI agents thought that Robert W. Rackstraw Sr., a U.S. Army veteran and paratrooper who closely resembled the police sketch of the culprit, was the parachuting thief who in 1971 jumped from a plane over Washington State with $200,000 in ransom money, according to sources. But it wasn't until 2016 that Rackstraw was fingered by a team of codebreakers. They could have used another word there, right? Yeah. Um, it wasn't until 2016 that Rackstraw was mentioned by a team of codebreakers and 40 investigators as the man who pulled off history's most daring heist. I can't read tonight. He was always boastful that nobody could prove anything. Though the feds ultimately ruled him out as a suspect, independent investigators, which means internet sleuths, said cryptic coding in a 47-year-old letter sent by Cooper to a newspaper proved the hijacker was Rackstraw. The fact that code from Rackstraw's three military units, two of them secret until the late 80s, were embedded in the letter makes this a smoking gun, declared filmmaker Thomas Colbert, leader of the sleuths who claimed that they unraveled the mystery. Colbert believes that Rackstraw's dispatch was directed at three co-conspirators who, according to FBI documents and witnesses, helped him escape. Still before his death, Rackstraw continued to be evasive. They say that I'm him, he said. If you want to believe it, believe it. Yeah, I always loved the story of D.B. Cooper. Uh, you know, the guy hijacked an airplane. He demanded money. He got the money. He got the plane in the air. And he parachuted from the plane over Washington State in a rural area. Um, the the most common theory, the thing that most people believe, is that there's no way he survived uh, jumping from that plane. It was at such a high altitude. It was so dark. It was over uh, an area with tons of trees. It was freezing cold outside. Um, however, many people have said that someone with uh, experience jumping from planes, possibly a military person, could have made that jump and could have done it successfully at night. Uh, this guy is an interesting one for sure. And uh, by the way, Robert W. Rackstraw Sr., let's go back to the, the game that we play here every week, our favorite game, the initial game. What does the W stand for? It actually stands for Wesley, the same as my name, Wesley. That's how I know that. I'm not D.B. Cooper because I don't have $200,000. Robert W. Rackstraw might have been D.B. Cooper. Definitely some weird stuff in this story. The code breakers, those internet sleuths, and I don't underestimate internet sleuths. 
they're a bunch of people that watch videos and read stuff and think that they know it all, but they still break stories, they still figure stuff out, and they put the pieces together right sometimes. I mean, it was just in the news this week, or last week, that a group of internet sleuths had correctly decoded letters from the Zodiac Killer that the FBI had been un unable to figure out for years. So uh, I don't underestimate that, but I think it's interesting what they're claiming is that in a couple of these letters that D.B. Cooper mailed in uh, to newspapers, that terms from Robert W. Rackstraw Sr.'s uh, military career were actually used. And if that's true, I mean, that kind of kind of does seem like a smoking gun, right? Um, one thing I've always wanted to do, it's on my bucket list, every year there's tons of people that go uh, to the general vicinity or the area where D.B. Cooper allegedly jumped out of the airplane and they search for this money, right? Because the thought is, is that he lost some of it or that he hid it or that he stowed it away or that it fell out or if he died, uh, if he didn't survive the jump, then the money's out there and people go and look for it. Um, really, it's probably just a glorified camping trip, but uh, kind of a cool reason to go out there and camp. And if you're in Washington State, maybe you'll maybe you'll see Bigfoot anyway, you know, so you can just do a two-in-one D.B. Cooper money search, treasure hunt, slash Bigfoot, you know, listen for that big furry dude, holler at him, let, let him know. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. D.B. Cooper, maybe it was Rackstraw. If it was, I kind of wish he would have, like, said so before he passed. Um, but maybe his ghost will, uh, will haunt us and will tell us and will let us know. So, um... Yeah, D.B. Cooper. That's all the paranormal news stories we have for this week, but we're not done just yet. Uh, a couple of things that I want to do on tonight's show that I think would be fun. Uh, one is I want to share a list that I have made with you and get your opinion and your feedback on it. And the other is I have a story to share with you. So first, the list. Uh, here on In the Shed with Wes, we are a fan of paranormal television shows. And I have compiled a list of the top 20 paranormal TV shows of all time. So I want to share this list with you tonight. And I would love it if you would email us at, do you know it yet? In the shed with Wes at gmail.com. That's in the shed with Wes at gmail.com. No spaces, no capitals, all one word. And uh, tell me what you think. Tell me what your list looks like. The top 20 paranormal TV shows of all time. This is the list that we came up with. Obviously, it's subjective, but this is our opinion. Number 20, I Dream of Jeannie, starring Barbara Eden. I remember watching reruns of that show as a child, and uh, I was like, man, to have a genie as a wife would be pretty awesome, right? Like, that'd be pretty dope. Uh, number 20, I Dream of Jeannie. Number 19, Monk. And I will say, I shared this list with my wife, and she and I got into an argument about whether or not Monk was a paranormal TV show. She says it was not, that that man was just OCD. And I said that he was, but his OCD took the form of almost psychic ability, and that is why I have included it in my list, because I like Adrian Monk. He was a good detective, and he makes my list at number 19. Number 18, The Secret Life of Alex Mack. You remember this show? Have you seen it? It was on Nickelodeon. Uh, back when I was a kid, it was about this teenage girl that had like this to toxic waste spilled on her and she had powers where she could like turn into a, a slime or a goo and go under doorways and she could shoot electricity from her fingertips. It was a cool show, very underrated. And that's number 18. Number 17, Courage the Cowardly Dog. That's the first animated show to make the list and it had a lot of paranormal stuff on it. It was a cool show. 
Number 16, this one's kind of out of left field, but a good one nonetheless, Scare Tactics. This was a show on the Sci-Fi channel. It was kind of a hidden camera type show, and it was where you would set up your friend. They would think that they were going to a job. They were going to make some money and get paid, and then they would be terrified. Uh, it would be set up to make it look like aliens were invading, or a werewolf was attacking, or a serial killer was at their job site, or strange things like that. And uh, these people were afraid on national television for our pleasure, and it was hilarious, and that makes the list at 16. Number 15, Goosebumps, based on R.L. Stein's children's books. Um, those books terrified me as a child. They're children's books, but they were scary to me, but the show was good, though. 15. Number 14, Ah! Real Monsters. That's another Nickelodeon show, another animated cartoon about a bunch of monsters, definitely underrated. was a really cool show. I like that one a lot. Number 13, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Y'all know that one. Number 12 is a newer show. It's uh, only been out for a couple seasons. It's called Project Blue Book. Uh, it's a really good show. Um, I think it comes on History Channel, maybe. Uh, I, I've seen both seasons. And uh, it's about, uh, it's loosely based on, on real history. There actually was something called Project Blue Book in the Air Force where they looked into UFO sightings, and so that's what the show's about. It's a cool show. Um, number 11, a Canadian show. It was Big Wolf on Campus. It ran from 1999 to 2005, starring, um, well, I don't know the actor's real name. I remember the, 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 uh, the character's name on the show was Tommy Dawkins. And so basically Tommy Dawkins was a high school star quarterback, good-looking, popular-type kid, all-American type kid, I guess all-Canadian, is that a thing? He was all-Canadian type kid, and uh, he got bit by a werewolf, and so he was a werewolf, and when the moon came out, he would turn into a werewolf, and he had like a little dorky friend that was uh, into werewolves, and they worked together to protect their city. He was a good werewolf, though. He used his powers for good. You have that ability, people. Whatever talents, abilities, powers you have, you can use them for good or for evil, all right? This is my TED Talk. Thank you for coming. That show was called Big Wolf on Campus, and it was super dope. I liked it a lot. Ran for several seasons. And now the top 10 paranormal TV shows of all time. Number 10, The 4400. You remember this show? It was from like 2004, I think. Um, and basically the premise was that 4,400 people who were presumed dead or who were missing, one day they just dropped from the sky. They just descended from the sky. They returned exactly the way they left. And uh, it follows those people as they kind of try to get reintegrated into the world. One of them commits a murder, and then all heck breaks loose. It was a cool show. Number nine, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And you're like, that's not a paranormal show. That's about superheroes. It's about little turtles that had some toxic stuff on them and became big turtles. I mean, that... It don't get more paranormal than that. Like turtles that become almost like people, but they're giant turtles and they're like six feet tall and they fight crime. Like that's some paranormal stuff. So don't even argue with me about the Ninja Turtles. They're number nine. Number eight, Falling Skies. This was a, a show several years ago. It starred Noah Wiley from The Librarians and Will Patton and Clanton, Alabama's own Drew Roy graduated from my high school what's up drew shout out to you maybe we can get you on the show one day put you on the podcast bring you in my shed you know get you a little snack some granola bar some sweet tea we'll hang out kick it you know his sister uh lauren lived in the, the uh apartment with my sister first year of college at auburn so that's cool too that's cool 
But Falling Skies, getting back to the actual show, number eight on the list, Falling Skies was a show about alien uh, invasion of Earth, and it was pretty dope. I liked it a lot. Some people did not. I was a fan, though. Number seven, perennially underrated, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Another Nickelodeon show, another show aimed at kids. How come when I was a kid, they had shows for kids that were like horror or were like scary, but for kids? And nowadays, they ain't got nothing like that. These kids are soft. You know, these kids need to be scared. Today's children need to be afraid. Scare your children. I scare my my daughter's four years old. I scare her on a daily basis. One of my favorite things to do is to hide in the nursery. And uh, when she walks by in the hallway, I jump out and scare her. And every single time it terrifies her. That makes me sound like a bad father, doesn't it? I'm a good father, I promise. Um, <laughs> number seven, Are You Afraid of the Dark? It was about kids that gathered around a campfire and they told scary stories and that was the show. Um, number six, a popular one right now in the world, Stranger Things. On Netflix, of course, it's a pretty good show. I like the storytelling. Uh, the effects are a lot better than some of these shows that were uh, filmed in the 90s. So Stranger Things. Number five, the top five paranormal TV shows of all time. Number five, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Not a lot to say about Buffy. That's a classic. Number four, another classic, a little bit older, The Twilight Zone. Uh, I love watching reruns of The Twilight Zone to this day. If I see it's on TV, that's what I'm doing. Break out a bag of Cheetos, have a couple pops. It's a good time. It's a good time. The top three paranormal TV shows of all time. Number three... AMC's The Walking Dead. This is not only one of my top three paranormal TV shows of all time, it's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Uh, Some people kind of checked out after the first three or four seasons and said it went downhill. Uh, I will fight you. I will fight you. The Walking Dead is a great show. And by the way, I would just say the show is not about zombies. The show is about humans and how we, uh, in, in times of stress and in times of trauma, the real us that we have been all along comes out and is revealed. Um, anyway, it's a great show. I like The Walking Dead. Uh, kind of an end-time zombie story. A group of, of friends and strangers kind of combined together to fight the zombies to survive. It is a great show. Number two, The X-Files. The X-Files in some ways kind of started it all when it comes to paranormal TV shows. It pushed the boundaries of uh, what would be popular. People did not think a show like that could work in primetime television. The X-Files proved otherwise. Uh, in my marriage, I am the molder. My wife is the scully. Uh, I am the, the true believer. She is the skeptic. Uh, and it works. It works. It's a good marriage. You know, almost eight years. I love that woman. I also love the X-Files, number two. And number one, you ready for this? The best paranormal TV show of all time. Scooby Dooby Doo. Don't laugh. Don't argue. Consider. I asked you last week to come to this show and to our discussions with an open mind. I'm about to test that because I believe that Scooby Doo is the greatest paranormal TV show of all time. Why? Number one, longevity. This show has been on TV since 1969, y'all. This show is a show that my father grew up watching as a child that I grew up watching as a child, and that now my children grow up watching. Like, how cool is that? Think about that. That little dog, that Great Dane, that scaredy cat of a dog, 
that makes sense, Scaredy Cat of a Dog, has been on TV since 1969. Three generations of my family have grown up watching Scooby-Doo, so longevity. Also, unparalleled celebrity guest appearances. Think about all the folks that done been on Scooby-Doo. They had the Globetrotters on Scooby-Doo. What other paranormal TV show has celebrity guest appearances like Scooby-Doo? Ain't no one. You also got to consider the awesome voice acting that happens on Scooby-Doo. I mean, you got Casey Kasem on there. He's no longer with us. R.I.P. pouring out from a homie. Uh, and the storytelling and the lessons that were learned and even the things that are still quoted to this day that have become a, a part of popular vernacular and culture. Like, uh, I would have done it. I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Everybody knows that. Uh, so there's a lot of good shows on this list. But for me, Scooby-Doo is the greatest paranormal television show of all time. Uh, get with us. Let us know. Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Where do we go wrong? Where do we stray? What is your best paranormal TV show of all time? What's your top five? Send us an email. We'll read it on air. Um, yeah, give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. But that's our list. That's what we think. I'll put some a lot of time, about seven or eight minutes into making that list earlier today. And uh, that's what I've come up with. Now, before we close out our show, the last thing that I want to do is share a story with you. I said last week that sometimes, uh, from time to time, I may share a story of my own paranormal experience with you. The story that I'm about to share is completely 100% real, truthful from my perspective. Uh, it was events that happened in my life that I cannot explain to this day. I don't know what happened. I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. It was a single scariest experience of my entire life. I don't know that it was paranormal, but I do know that it is hard to fathom and to understand, and that I certainly have no explanation for it. So without further ado, here is the scariest thing that I have ever experienced. At the time this story took place, I was a middle schooler. My family lived in a small town in the panhandle of Florida where my dad was pastor of a church. I was a dedicated and active member of our church's youth group. And on Sunday nights, the church would gather for a worship service. While the worship service was going on, we would have youth group up in the youth room, after which we would come down for the last portion of the service, and then kids would leave with their parents. We had just gotten a new youth pastor, and in his haste to make friends with all of the teenagers and introduce himself, he had met one kid who actually was not in our youth group. Thinking this kid was in high school, he introduced himself. He, he told him that he lived right there uh, next to the church and that he was welcome any time. Well, he didn't know that this kid was not a high schooler. He was in his early 20s. There was something about this young man that was different. There was something about him that, that seemed off, something that was odd. And in the next couple of weeks, he started to act in a way that made the youth pastor uncomfortable. He would show up at his house at all hours of day and night. Sometimes, even after dark, tapping on the windows rather than knocking on the door. It became so pervasive that the youth pastor actually confronted him and told him that he was no longer welcome at his house and that he had to stop coming by. He had to stop calling. It was at this time that this kid 
started attending the Sunday night worship services at our church. But though he was there physically, he wasn't there in any other sense of the word. For the remainder and the duration of the service, he sat in the back of the room on the very last pew with a sketch pad, and he drew. He was a phenomenal artist. He could draw anything and draw it well. He didn't sing the songs. He didn't stand for scripture. He didn't bow his head in prayer. He just sat and he stared at his pad and he drew. This drew the attention of the teenagers in the youth group who began to request certain drawings from him and each week he would bring the drawing and he would give it to the students that had requested them. One night this young man called my father. In the middle of the night called the pastor and was hysterical. He was saying that he needed help. He was saying that he had to be let into the church, that he needed to get in the sanctuary, that he needed prayer right that very minute. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. Of course, my dad was willing to meet with him, but not in the middle of the night. The church was not open. It was not a time if he did not have an immediate physical need to show up at the church and pray, he was welcome to come by the next day. But this young man was insistent that he needed to be in the sanctuary at that time. As time went on, my father asked me, not to be around this kid. He told me there are things that you don't know about him, things that I don't need to tell you, but I do need to tell you that he's unsafe. And not to put yourself alone with him, that if you see him and no one else is around, you need to go home, you need to leave. On the block that the church was located, there was the church building itself. Right behind the church building was our house where we lived, And then on the other side of the block was the youth pastor's house. We all were right there on the same block. One Sunday night, after youth group, we came down to finish out the service. And after church, the youth were gathered around this young man. We were requesting drawings from him. And then before I knew it, I had lost track of time. I looked up, and the sanctuary had been cleared out. And the choir was having choir practice. And they were up front singing and rehearsing. And it was just me and this kid left. And I thought about the words that my dad had told me. That he was unsafe. That I should avoid being around him. That if I ever found myself in a situation where it was just he and I, that I should leave. So trying to leave discreetly, I got up and I walked out the side door and tried to go around the building in between the church and the fellowship hall, headed towards my house. But when I got in line with the side door of the sanctuary, this young man had also exited and was blocking my path. Looking up at him, I saw a darkness in his eyes that night, a darkness that I couldn't understand, and I didn't know why it was present. Frightened, I I wasn't intending to stay near him any longer, and so I turned And I went the opposite direction, and I had the thought in my mind that if I cut through the side of the building, I could be on the same side of of the church that my house and my front door was. I could take a shortcut. I could get home where it was safe. But when I went through the church, when I went around the side, when I got to the block where my house was, somehow, unexplainably, this young man was standing at the very end of the street, at the stop sign. I could see him clearly. I could see him clearly standing 
underneath the street light. There's no possible way. In order for him to have gotten there, he would have had to have gone the long way, all the way around the block. I took a shortcut. Even Usain Bolt at top speed could not have gotten there. I don't know how he was standing there. I don't know how it's possible. It's not possible. But I saw him standing there, under the street lamp, blocking my path yet again, keeping me from getting home, keeping me from being safe, keeping me from heeding my father's words. And I was terrified. Turning around, I ran as fast as I could. I went back into the church. I went into my father's office. I shut the door. I I got on the phone. I called him. I was crying. I was sobbing. And I asked him to come get me, even as a middle schooler, not as a small child. My father had to come to the church building, pick me up in his arms, and carry me home. He kept asking me what was wrong. I couldn't form the words to tell him that somehow this kid that I was supposed to stay away from, somehow this kid who had called in the middle of the night demanding to get into the sanctuary because he needed help, this kid who had uh, who had scared our youth pastor by showing up in the middle of the night and knocking on his windows so many times that he was asked not to, that had this unworldly talent that somehow he had just appeared at the end of the street that he had gotten from one side of me to the other without ever crossing my path. It was the single scariest moment of my life. And to this day, I have no explanation for it. I later heard stories about this young man. That in high school, he had been in an art contest. And that after losing the contest, he had done unspeakable things to some neighborhood cats, and left traces of those cats in the locker of the young man that had won the art contest and was expelled from school. I heard numerous rumors about the things that he was into, the things that he was involved in, the rituals, the beliefs, the darkness. I don't know if those things are true. I can't verify them. What I can say is that night, What I saw made no sense. That night what I saw was not possible. And still, this many years later, I'm sure of what I saw, and I'm sure that I cannot explain it. Well, that's it, folks. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 002. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share with the show, you can email us at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, preview Super Bowl 55, and I'll share the story of my grandfather's West Virginia Bigfoot encounter that wasn't. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best new show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it!